The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Welcome, folks, as we continue in our week-by-week journey through the Gospel of Mark. We are at week number 20, week 20, and we're going to pick it up in a moment in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 50. Um, Let's remember the context. Um, We had Peter's confession a few weeks ago, you are the Christ, and we said that was the conclusion of Act 1 of Mark's three-act gospel, if you will, Um, and the theme of Act 1 was, who is this man? Well, it concluded with, you're the Messiah, he's the Messiah, and then that led to Jesus' declaration, you're right, Peter, I am the Messiah, and here's what's going to happen next, the Messiah is going to be... tortured and whipped and beaten and crucified and on the third day rise again. So the, that declaration began the, the beginning of the act two. And the theme of act two is who is the Messiah? Act one, who is this man? He's the Messiah. Act two, so who's the Messiah? And well, he's not what you think is what Jesus is about to teach in this portion that we're studying over the next few weeks in act two of Mark's gospel. And so following Jesus' declaration of what the Messiah would experience was the transfiguration, which we learned about a couple of weeks ago. And that was literally the, the father's declaration, the father's confirmation would be better put, the father's confirmation of Jesus' declaration, where the father supernaturally confirmed by revealing an aspect of the glory that Jesus uh, owned um, at that transfiguration. And uh, so the father confirmed even verbally to Peter, James, and John that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He's telling you the truth. And then the dis- last week when we were together, the disciples kind of botched exorcism led to a lesson on faith that Jesus taught. Now, we didn't have time to, do, to answer questions last week, uh, and I promised that I would open today's session with any questions about last week. So it's specifically about last week. So do you have any questions that, from what we taught last week that you'd like us to answer before we begin today? I see the person who specifically asked to make sure that I answer questions today is not here. It's okay. Not a big deal. Okay, then let's keep moving. So we pick things up uh, again in verse 30 of chapter 9 in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Let's begin reading verse 30 and 32. So Jesus says, they left that place and they passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples He said to them, the son of man, again, that's another title for the Messiah from the book of Daniel that Jesus chose to use for himself. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. After three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So this is, as your outline says, this is Jesus' uh, second passion prediction. Now, remember, the word passion in this context means suffering. Like the movie, The Passion of the Christ, is referring to the suffering of the Christ. So this is his second passion prediction. And so what's happened was, again, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, the Dead Sea, Jerusalem's about here, the Mediterranean Sea, uh, Lebanon, modern day, say Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, okay, sort of the borders very loosely, okay, Egypt down here. So um, they were up here, 
in Caesarea Philippi, this area up here, Mount Hermon, and now they're heading back down this way, and Capernaum is sort of on the northwestern shore there, and this was Jesus' home base, and that's where they've returned now from back down to Capernaum from where Jesus was. As your outline says, um, he moves from public displays, this is 1A, he moves from public displays of his messianic authority to private explanations of his messianic mission. So he's moved from public displays, that's what Act 1 was all about, of his messianic authority, and now he's going to private explanations, private explanations of his messianic mission. Okay? Public displays to private explanations. Displays of his authority, now private explanations of his mission. Who are you? I am the, you know, who is this man? Well, he's displaying his authority. He's doing what only the Messiah could do. They figure it out after the first act of this gospel. And now they've realized he's the Messiah. Now he's doing private explanations of what the Messiah's mission is actually all about. Now, that phrase was teaching in verse 32. In the original Greek, it's in the imperfect tense, which signifies a recurring, repeated activity. So he's continually teaching is what that verb tense means. So Jesus is working hard at unpacking the truth about the Messiah and debunking the myths about the Messiah, okay? Letter B, Mark appears to package Jesus' passion predictions in cycles, okay, in cycles, what he, he does is, in Mark's gospel, he packages them th three cycles of three. We'll see this, and we'll explain this a bit more as today goes on. But as your outline says, what happens is, in these three cycles work like this. First of all, Jesus predicts his passion. In other words, he predicts the suffering that's going to happen to him. And then, in Mark's gospel, what happens next is always the disciples react inappropriately. The first time, Peter was, that will never happen to you. He, re he rebukes Jesus. And then third part of the first cycle, Jesus then unpacks the nature of true discipleship. So Jesus makes his prediction of what's going to happen to him, and it's not good. The disciples act inappropriately, and Jesus uses that as a teaching moment. That happens each time, and, and Mark um, lays that out in sort of three cycles, and we're going to see another cycle today. So you, you, uh, number two on your outline from verse 32, in fact, let's reread verse 32 says, but they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. So Jesus, again, has, for the second time, has predicted what's going to happen to him. He's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to rise again on the third day. As your outline says, number two, the disciples struggled to understand Jesus' prediction. They struggled to understand Jesus' prediction. Why is this? Well, three main reasons, A, B, C, and number two. First of all, A, they had no concept of a dying Messiah. You've heard me, I'm reminding us of this week after week after week, because this is where often people get confused when they just have a surface reading of Scripture and, and what Jesus said and did, and, and we impose our concept of the Messiah back into the first century. So note, first century Judaism had no concept of a dying Messiah. For us, Messiah means, yes, it's someone who dies on your behalf. Not in the first century. Messiah was a superman. He, he doesn't die. He's, he's a political ruler, okay, who comes and, and restores Israel to its former glory, defeats all of their enemies. He's not killed, 
by their enemies, particularly on a cross, which is a sign in the Old Testament that you're cursed. So, whoa, they had no concept of what he was talking about, okay? And letter B, to B, they had no concept of an individual resurrection prior to the end. They had no concept of an individual resurrection prior to the end. Meaning, the Jewish mindset was, okay, everybody exists, then everybody physically dies, okay, and then, um, and then at some point in the future, at the end of the world, everyone, uh, there's a physical resurrection. So it's a, it's a global resurrection, think in those terms, okay? The righteous are particularly resurrected. So physical death, and then everyone is in this uh, altered state of their, their, their spirits are separated from their body. And then the Jewish concept was someday in the future, the end of the world, there's this mass, that's the word I'm looking for, a mass resurrection. It happens all at once with everyone. They had no concept of before this mass resurrection, just one person randomly being resurrected. No, that was nowhere in the Jewish mind, nowhere in their concept. So for Jesus to talk about this, dying and then after three days he'll be resurrected, what are you talking about? Are you saying the world's going to end in three days? It doesn't make sense. So again, a dying Messiah, oxymoron, doesn't make sense. An individual resurrection, again, we have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. So, so why didn't they acknowledge they didn't understand? Well, that's letter C. They didn't want to admit they were clueless as to Jesus' meaning. They didn't want to admit that they were clueless as to Jesus' meaning. You say, why wouldn't they? Well, you can look up those four verses that I've given you there, because they probably are still remembering Jesus saying several times, do you not understand? How long must I be with you? Do you still not get this? So he says that a few times to them, and they're probably thinking, oh, I don't want to look stupid. And I, I want to look sh- like he, th- I want him to think I'm smart. I'm getting everything. So I'm not going to be the person to step forward and say, I don't understand a thing you're saying here. So they, they, they didn't understand, but they didn't want to acknowledge at this point that they didn't understand. Which then leads in Mark's gospel to the great debate, meaning the debate about who's great. <laughs> okay, let's pick it up in verse 33 and 34 of chapter nine. So they came to Capernaum a town that we're going to visit in March of 2020. And uh, it's my favorite place in all of Israel. I've spent days just sitting in the synagogue there and reading and studying. It's, I look, it's my favorite place in the whole tour. Uh, let's pick it up again, verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, um, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest, okay? So they're back home, back at home base, likely Peter's house, and uh, we'll visit there, by the way. That house, they actually have, um, they've discovered that house, and of some archaeological sites are more certain than others. This has a high, high, high level of certainty. We're actually going to stand over top of it and look down into Peter's house. It's fascinating. Um, So they're back here at this home base, just a little thing, a little place. Now, remember the cycles? Uh, Jesus predicts his passion, they react inappropriately, and then Jesus teaches as a result. 
Uh, remember the first cycle, Jesus predicted, Peter rebuked him. Well, this cycle, Jesus predicts his suffering. And now they, the disciples focus on who's the greatest as a response to Jesus' prediction. Uh, let's reread from verse 31 on so we get the context. Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him. After three days, he'll rise. But they didn't understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. So they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Let's stop there. So in spite of Jesus' declaration, as your outline says, they are stuck in the popular paradigm regarding the Messiah's role. So in spite of the, uh, Jesus' declaration, this is the second time he's made it clear, these disciples, they're stuck in the popular paradigm, the, the way of thinking regarding the Messiah's role. This shows you how deeply rooted the messianic concept was in their mind. And 1A on your outline, they are jockeying, they're, they're maneuvering, they're jockeying for high positions in the Messiah's government. They were jockeying for high positions in the Messiah's government. Look at verse 35 to 37. Um, Jesus, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So number two, Jesus lays out the counter-cultural and counter-intuitive pathway to greatness in God's kingdom. The counter-cultural and the counter-intuitive pathway to greatness in God's kingdom. Jesus says, I know this is not at all how the world teaches you to, to rise to heights, but this is how it happens in the kingdom of God. In the world, if you want to be the greatest, you climb over the bodies of the people around you. Not so in my kingdom. In my kingdom, if you want to be the greatest, you should be the servant of everyone else. That's countercultural, particularly in Roman society, and it's also counterintuitive. That's not how I would think it would work. If you were to, you know, ask me how to rise uh, on our own, that's not how we think. It's very countercultural, very counterintuitive. Now, Jesus, by the way, didn't ask the question in verse 33 because he didn't know. In other words, he didn't say, what were you guys talking about on the road on the way here? He didn't ask that because he didn't know. Verse 35 shows us he already knew what they were talking about. So why did he ask? He knew what they were saying. Was it that he overheard them? It's possible, very possible. Or was it an example of, again, his omniscience? Oh, I'm going to have to start actually rubbing stuff out now. Omniscience. It's uh, omni-science. Omni means all science knowledge. Omniscience of God means God's all-knowing ability. God knows everything that is knowable. And if Jesus is God, and Scripture certainly pre-, pre shows him as God, then uh, Jesus would have had to have been omniscient. Except, if Jesus was omniscient, but there were things he said he didn't know. He didn't know the date of his return, for example. 
uh, once he's walking through the crowd. Remember that woman who went to heal Jairus' daughter, a woman touched him. Jesus said, who touched me? Well, if you're omniscient, you should know who touched you. So if Jesus is omniscient, why were the things he didn't know? When we discussed the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity a while ago in this class, we presented one option to, to answer this. Of course, we, we realize that Jesus, the, with the Trinity, we're going to talk about the Trinity in a few weeks on a Sunday here. We're going to do a series after Easter we're calling Head Scratchers, where we're going to address some of the most, some of those issues that are very vexing and troubling, like hell and sexuality and suffering and evil, and one of them we're going to answer is, what's with the Trinity? And so remember, our, if you're in this class, you're way ahead on that one. You can skip that Sunday because you already know. But we learned that the Trinity is the rule of thumb for human beings is one mind per soul, right? I have that soul, that, that um, non-physical part of me. And the rule of thumb is for humans is only one mind per soul. In other words, I can't say, hi, I'm Darren, and I'm Bill. You know, no, it's one mind, one self-aware being per soul. That's the rule uh, for humans. But with God, God's not a human. He's a whole different class of being. And with God, it's three minds per one soul. God is one being that is home to three minds, three distinct centers of consciousness. Humans, one soul, one distinct center of consciousness, self-awareness. With God, three minds, I'm not even going to circle them because that makes them look like three separate beings. It's one being that is home, one soul that is home to three self-aware minds, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what the what Jesus is, is the son who actually, so that's just soul, immaterial, God is spirit, not physical. The son actually added to his experience a human form. It's Philippians 2. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to use for his own advantage, but instead he took on the form of, he made himself nothing. He added, took on the appearance of a human. And so he actually, the son of God, took on human flesh, and he lived amongst us. And while he was on earth, the son dwelt in the form of a body. And then when he died, he discarded that bodily form and returned back to his previous form, okay? And uh, so while Jesus was on earth, he was God with all of God's attributes, but Again, covered in humanity. And the transfiguration was that moment when Jesus almost kind of lifted his sleeve a little bit, lift, pulled back the humanity, and revealed his true nature for a moment. But with omniscience, so how does this fit? Because was he baby Jesus in the manger? He knew quantum physics? Uh, how does that work? Um, well, the best explanation I've seen over the years is that omniscience, while Jesus was... Uh, a man, while the son was in the form of a man, that the omniscience of God, that he still possessed it because it's not something you can give up. It's part of his essence. But it, um, his omniscience um, was, what's the word I'll use? It, it, um, it dwelt in Jesus' subconscious. So he possessed it, that knowledge, but he only accessed it when the father directed him. 
Because when Jesus came to earth, and I'm way off track here, but when Jesus came to earth, he submitted himself to the Father. And so he, Jesus said, I only do what I see my Father do. Father's greater than I. Well, they're one being. He's saying, I'm submitting myself. I, I will deem the Father greater than I while I'm on earth, and I will only do what I, the Father tells me to do. So right now, you have knowledge that you're not aware of right now. Okay, think about what you're thinking about. Okay, now, think about your birthday. Were you not, you know... Had you forgotten your birthday private previously? No. It was in your subconscious. It was in the back of your mind. It was not at the front of your mind. Well, the omniscience, all of that knowledge was like what you were doing with your birthday. Jesus had all that in his subconscious. He could access it if he wanted to, but he only would access what the Father directed him to access. So that's why he could say one moment he doesn't know who touched him, and the next moment he's saying, what were you talking about? I know what you're talking about. That's why he knows, the, the Bible says he knew their thoughts because he could access the omniscience when the Father directed him. Okay, so that could also, also be what's happening at this moment as well, okay? But what Jesus is teaching here is in God's kingdom, you rise to the top by bowing down. And he then illustrates what he means by pulling some little children and, and using them as an example. Now, the first thing that comes to the mind of a 21st century North American reader when we think children is innocent, pure, vulnerable, gentle. And we think that's the symbolism Jesus is using here. He's saying, you know, this is, you know, look at these pure, innocent, gentle little children. And, and that's what you have to be like in my kingdom. But that's not what children represented in first century culture. To welcome one of these little children in his name wasn't about protecting the pure. It was about humbling yourself in the eyes of others. As your outline says, children had no social status and represented insignificance in that culture. Insignificance. So children had no social status and they represented absolute insignificance. You just didn't pay attention to a child. Uh, you didn't, they, they were meaningless, really, socially speaking. They, they couldn't get you ahead in life, so you just kind of put them off to the side. They had no social status. And so Jesus is talking about treating these little children by honoring them. Oh, it's very counterintuitive. But that's what you need to do in my kingdom. He says, if you welcome one of these in my name, meaning... Um, for my sake or as my representative or with my authority or based upon my name, he says, then, then you're, you're, you're following kingdom uh, protocol. So what Jesus is saying, letter B, is this. When his followers serve those without status, they serve him and the one who sent him. Jesus is saying, when you, my followers, serve people who have no status, when you serve in a, to people who cannot benefit you in return, then you're serving me and you're serving the one who sent me. That's what Jesus is saying. Then we get to the unknown exorcist. That's what we'll call it. Verse 38. So, teacher, said John. Remember, John is one of Jesus' management team. He's one of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. They're the ones who got up on the transfiguration. They're the ones who got to see Jairus' daughter risen from the dead. They're the ones who Jesus calls to pray with him in Gethsemane. So Peter, James, and John were part of Jesus' inner core. And uh, as they, it says here in verse uh, 38... 
Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. It appears, as your outline says, that uh, Jesus' use of in my name triggered a recent incident in John's memory. So Jesus just said, if you welcome one of these in my name, and, G- and John thinks, in my name, that reminds me of something that just happened. As your outline says, it appears John is referring to a true believer outside of the twelve. In this incident that John, to which John's referring, it looks like he's referring to someone who is a true believer, but they are outside of the 12, the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. In other words, John's saying, hey, Jesus, we caught someone outside of our gang delivering people from a demon in your name. Don't worry, we stopped them. And... Uh, Letter B, it appears that John had some issues with authority early in his life. Uh, you could, as you look at scripture, it appears John maybe had some issues with authority early in his life. Why do we say that? Well, in Mark 3, 17, J- Jesus gave nicknames. You know, Peter was the rock. And James and John, he called them sons of thunder was his nickname for them. So it, it appears that these two guys, they, they were kind of like Peter. They just spouted off, and, and they were aggressive guys. It was um, James and John who, in Mark chapter 10, pulled up alongside Jesus as they're walking somewhere, and they said, hey, Jesus, we're asking you to give us positions of power in your kingdom. And the other disciples were furious when they heard this because they thought, oh, why did they think of that before us? But James and John, they're right there. They're like, when you get to your kingdom and you overtake these dirty Romans, can you seat us at your right hand? Like, we want to be right there uh, in your ruling cabinet. In Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 55, Luke told about the time that the disciples and Jesus are walking along, and they come to a Samaritan village. Samaria was this area here, and uh, these were sort of considered not purebred Jewish people to the Jewish folks. They, they were half Jews in their minds. So many a Jew to go to Jerusalem to do this, Go over here and then travel this way um, because they just didn't like them. And, uh, but Jesus often didn't do that. He went right through. And um, like the woman at the well, I was in this, you know, that's why the story of the Good Samaritan, like what? what a good, that's an oxymoron, a Good Samaritan. That'd be like us saying, you know, it's the story of the Good ISIS fighter. What? You know, and that's why, and that's in fact why when Jesus told that story, the Pharisee wouldn't even say Samaritan. Jesus said, you know, the, the Samaritan was the one who helped. The priest didn't. He didn't help in Jesus' story, but the Samaritan did. So Jesus said, which one was his neighbor? And the priest said, the one who helped him. He didn't say the Samaritan. The one who helped him. So anyway, I say all that to say they're, they're walking through this area. And uh, in this particular village, Jesus was not welcomed. So James and John, as Luke records it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down thunder, call down fire from heaven on these people? So again, these guys were just action type of people, and they would just go to it and, and, and uh, just take charge. And that's what they've done here. Lord, I want you to know, we saw some people successfully doing exorcisms in your name, but they weren't one of our gangs, so we told them to stop. Just thought let you know. And uh, Jesus, as your outline says, number two, discourages Petty partisanship. He discourages petty partisanship. 
Look at verses 39 to 41. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. He's saying, listen, don't get into petty partisanship, guys. Jesus is citing a proverb here. A, a proverb is a general truth. Think of it as a, an ancient bumper sticker, okay? That's what a proverb is. It's a general truth, meaning there are exceptions to this, but generally speaking, this is true. Raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's older, he won't depart from it. Generally speaking, that's true, but there are exceptions. Um, and Jesus is quoting a proverb here as well. Now, Jesus' point, as your outline says, generally speaking, one who sees the power in his name one minute is unlikely to accuse him of being in league with the devil the next minute. That's what he's saying here. His point is, generally speaking, someone who sees power in my name one minute is unlikely to accuse me of being in league with the devil the next minute. So don't be stopping people doing that because they're not a danger to us. Letter B on your outline, this proverb applies to those who see everyone outside their circle as enemies. So this proverb applies to people who see everyone outside of their circle as enemies. That'd be like someone coming to me and saying, Pastor Darren, uh, we saw some people um, sharing the gospel down in East Hastings, and they were from uh, the First Baptist Church, and they weren't from Broadway, so we stopped them. And I'd say, what? Yeah, they're not members of Broadway, so we told them to stop that. That's kind of what was happening here, okay? It applies to those who see everyone outside of their little circle as enemies. Now, the opposite, which you'll find in Luke eleven twenty three, 23, applies to those who are sitting on the fence at decision time. Because Jesus another time said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. But that context is more about uh, people who are on the fence at decision time, and they're not with me, so they're actually against me. Okay? But this person who was delivering demons was clearly not against Jesus. They, were, they weren't scattering. They were gathering. They were using his name and, and seeing people delivered in his name. Okay. In verse 41, Jesus is simply saying, anyone who supports lowly and struggling Christ followers will be rewarded you know, receiving a cup of cold water in my name. He's saying anyone who supports lowly and struggling Christ followers will be rewarded. Now, note what Jesus is doing in verse 41. He's in private discussions with his disciples, and he clearly refers to himself as the Messiah. See that in verse 41? Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Jesus is is revealing himself privately now. So he's gone from previously not talking about it, and now that Peter's acknowledged it and the other disciples have, now he's acknowledging his Messiahship privately. And then once he gets into Jerusalem in Act 3 of Mark's Gospel, he then publicly allows it to be spoken with the Palm Sunday and the entrance into the city. Um, but he's not there yet, Okay. Then he goes on to a teaching on discipleship. Remember the cycle? Jesus' passion prediction, an inappropriate response from the disciples, and then Jesus uses it as a teaching moment. That's what happens. Um, he returns to the children theme. Look at verse 42 of chapter 9. 
If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. So Jesus, as your outline says, Jesus warns against causing lowly and struggling Christ followers to stumble. So he warns against causing lowly and struggling Christ followers to stumble. Literally, the millstone of a donkey is what it says in the original language, the millstone of a donkey. So in, in other words, a millstone that's unable to be turned by human hands. When uh, you go to Capernaum, they have the, the town, the village there, and they have also a bunch of archaeological findings behind fences that you can look at, things that they've discovered on this site as they've dug up. And you see a whole bunch of millstones. So you're like from me to the warehouse away from the Sea of Galilee. You can see it. It's right there. And you're in the, this little village, Capernaum. And the Sea of Galilee is right there. And, and the, like the Capernaum is just right up on the shore. And there's these millstones. And whenever I'm there, I'm standing there. I look at these millstones that they've dug up from Capernaum. And I thought to myself, well, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. Like, the children were right here. And these millstones that were in this town, that only, they were so heavy, only a donkey could move them, you know, to, to churn grain and so on, to, to grind grain. And Jesus was saying, it'd be better to have that millstone put around your neck and thrown into that water. I thought, it just, it, I find that moving every time I'm there and think, well, this is real. This is what they were seeing and thinking and experiencing. All right. And then number two, Jesus turns from outward sources of stumbling to inward sources. Jesus turns from outward sources of stumbling to inward sources. Verse 43, if your hand causes you to, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, as your outline says, and make sure you get this one. This is clearly hyperbole. Please. I don't want to be visiting anybody in Vancouver General who plucked their eye out because Pastor Darren was teaching from Mark. You know, no. It's hyperbole, and hyperbole is exaggeration to make a point, okay? So the symbolism here is, as your outline says, hand, meaning what is done. Hand is a symbol of what is done. Foot, where you go. And the eye, what you see. What's done, where you go, what you see. Well, think about this. Strictly speaking, my hand does not cause me to do anything. My eye does not cause me to do anything. You know, my foot, it's not as though, you know, I don't want to go there, oh, but my foot is making me go. Your foot doesn't have a mind of its own. It's your heart, it's, you know, where the, the, the wellspring of life in your life. So, but Jesus is saying, deal radically with the source of sin in your life. Deal radically with it, Okay. And then Jesus then uses the term hell. He refers to hell. Gehenna is the literal word. And that was a valley in Jerusalem with an infamous history that became symbolic of the place of divine judgment, as your outline says. That became symbolic of the place of divine judgment. Hell. 
the, the history of hell is, as a symbol was, was clear. There was a king who, uh, I forget his name as I'm standing here right now, but uh, he led uh, Israel into debauchery and he led them into worshiping Baal and Moloch, who are these Canaanite vile gods where you would actually sacrifice children to these gods. And he led Israel into worshiping this God. And they would do this in this valley. Um, it's, that valley is still there to this day in Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom. Hinnom was the name of someone. And so Gehenna it was the Valley of Hinnom. So what happened was in that valley was where they had these idols and people, Israelites, would go down and they would put their children and sacrifice their children to this God. And um, it was just terrible, screaming, wailing, and mourning, and so on, this ugly, awful place. Well, then King Josiah came to the throne, a godly king. He said, never again will we do this. And he turned that into the dump, the city dump for Jerusalem. And so the fires were always burning there and uh, because it had, you know, for sanitation purposes. So dead bodies of animals and so on, we tossed there. And it's just a place of rats and, and vermin and fires always burning and a smell and smoke always rising up. And that became the symbol for hell. That became the symbol for, for all that, the impurity, okay? And that's the picture that Jesus used to, to describe the, the ultimate destination, if you will, of those who rebel against God. It became symbolic of a place of divine judgment. Um, now, scholars are uncertain of uh, the precise... Uh, by the way, let me say as your outline says, verses 44 and 46, which is a repeat of verse 48, are not found in the earliest and best manuscripts, but were likely added by a later scribe as an attempt to get symmetry. So adding the part about the worms and so on, some versions add that to all three of those um, portions of verses 44 and 46, but the earliest and best manuscripts don't have that. They just have that at the end, just a point of interest. Now, scholars are uncertain of Jesus' precise meaning in verses 49 to 50. Let's read that. It is an awkward passage. It says, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves but be at and be at peace with each other. As your outline says, salted with fire is likely a reference to purification via trials and persecutions. Purification. Purification uh, through trials and persecutions. See, Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13 refers to salt as a purifying agent in the Old Testament sacrificial system. So perhaps Jesus is referring to a combination of the fire and the salt in the purification process because fire is also seen as a symbolic purifier. And so number four in your outline, using two different uses of salt. So this is where it gets a little confusing. Jesus uses salt in, one, in two different ways, two different contexts. So using two different uses of salt in verse 50, Jesus encourages his followers to maintain their distinctive and maintain peace. So using salt and different uses of salt, Jesus encourages his followers to maintain their distinctive, what sets them apart, and to maintain peace. Now, regarding maintaining their distinctive, maybe, we don't know, maybe Jesus is referring to the salt that's found in the Dead Sea, which includes various compounds. And so what happens was you've got this 
salt water, but when the water evaporates, apparently the sodium chloride crystals crystallizes first, which is the salt, essentially, and it can be removed, leaving just gypsum and these other impurities. So what remains is salt that has lost its saltiness. So you remove the sodium chloride, and you have what previously looked like salt, but it's salt that isn't really salt. It's lost its saltiness. Maybe Jesus is saying that. But So Jesus is encouraging his followers to not lose the characteristics that set them apart. The second reference about maintaining peace likely refers to the concept of sharing salt, which was a phrase used in the context of sharing meals together, which was a sign of fellowship. Having a meal with someone was a sign of relationship. So sharing salt meant being at peace with each other. So Jesus possibly is saying here, don't lose your sense of unity by competing with each other for the highest positions. Don't do that. Don't lose your distinctiveness. Serve one another and be at peace with each other. So don't lose your saltiness, but be salty with each other. So he's mixing the metaphors. Yes, it's confusing. But uh, in that culture, again, they would have grabbed it. All right, look at that. We've got a few minutes, a couple minutes for any questions about what we've learned today. There's a lot of scripture we covered today. Is modern Judaism still looking for a Superman? They are, when, when you go to Israel, um, you'll see big posters of deceased rabbis. And, um, and there are, so, so there's still groups of people who think, yes, this person was the Messiah, and he is going to come back somehow. Um, so... There's so many different, I'm not an expert on modern Judaism, but there seems to be so many different factions amongst Judaism today. But yes, they would see the Messiah as this incredibly pure, powerful uh, figure who now will return and, yes, will dominate the culture. So the question is, when Jesus overheard, um, when Jesus referred to what the disciples were arguing about on the road. Um, I gave two options. Uh, one was a natural one. He just simply overheard them. And the other one was a supernatural one, his omniscience. And um, what I simply do, I said, I'm not sure which it was. It's very possible it was a natural one. But it could have been the supernatural. And then I went down the bunny trail, because I'm, I like bunnies. Um, is Well, but okay, if it was a supernatural one, that means he was omniscient. Well, not necessarily. It could have been a word of knowledge, um, but a gift of the Spirit. But uh, omniscience, but how can Jesus be omniscience? Because he didn't know some other things, and that's why I did my best to explain. Well, actually, here's how it is actually possible that it was omniscience at play. So I just wanted to equip you. If you chose the omniscience one, I'm saying you have theological, philosophical, rational grounds to hold that Jesus was omniscient. Um, the question is, why do Christians not get involved with... Uh, with the, yeah, so if you, you cited the abortion debate, for example, why do not all Christians get involved? It's a fair question, a, a question many people would ask and wonder. Um, I think today the, it's the, it, maybe it deals with the saltiness that Jesus talked about, where uh, at what point do you, it's not our role to mandate our religion and our moral views on society, um, but we need to be salt. We need to influence. And so there's a fine line between um, protesting and preaching and teaching. Here's the biblical concept of human dignity. 
but okay, you can lay that out, but you can only, the best way to change the society is from the inside out, not from the top down. And so you can't mandate morality. You can mandate laws according to a morality, but you can't make someone moral by laws. Um, so it's a, it's a very fine line, admittedly. And, um, and I actually think, uh, and I know you and I have, well, actually I won't go there because that'll be a trigger for you. But, <laughs> but I was going to say, this is one area where the Catholic Church has put the Protestant Church to shame, where they have gone out and uh, taken a stand on this, where as evangelicals, I'll say, we have been a little more mealy-mouthed on this one, on that particular issue. But it's a fair question. One last question. Oh, yeah, so the physical appearance of Jesus post-resurrection. Yeah, um, the best explanation I've heard for the, of this is, okay, so does right now, does Jesus have a body? Think about that. Does he have a body? Well, it appears that part of the nature of having a glorified body is, depending on the, the dimension that you're in, you can adapt. Meaning, um, if Jesus is in, interacting in the physical realm, yes, then he has a glorified body. But as long as he's not in this realm... He doesn't access that glorified body. So for eternity, yes, he will have access to a glorified body. But right now, Jesus is not physically somewhere sitting, you know, all by himself, the only glorified body in all of the, the universe. Uh, to be absent with the from the body is present with the Lord. So right now, those who are deceased in Christ, their spirits are present with God's spirit. Um, but there will come a day then when we will all receive our glorified bodies, and then again, he will then, it appears, dwell in the glorified body for all eternity with us. All right, folks, great questions. Next week, yes, we continue next week. God bless you. See you then.